If you're like me, at the end of every year, you have a tendency to have one of those days where you just put it on the side just to kind of clean up all the loose ends from the previous year, kind of look back and reflect over the last year, uh, make some notes maybe if you journal or if you, uh, you know, keep a diary of some sort and say, well, in 2019, we'd like to do this differently. Maybe sit down and set some goals and objectives and then compare them to the goals and objectives that you stated for yourself in 2018, the previous year. If you're like me, you have one of those days, and sometimes those days are very telling. I don't put expectations upon the Lord other than to say that I expect the Lord to always be faithful to that which he has promised to us. And each year is a little different. One person who I truly admired on while he was dying said to me, he said, you're going to notice, Eric, that every year is like a wave that hits the shore. It's a different size. It's a different weight and capacity, and it spreads differently once it climaxes and turns and then hits the shoreline to sweep up into the beach. And he was truly uh, correct when he said that, that every year is a little different than the year previous. And last year, I want to tell you that I just felt that I had come to a place in my personal life where I just didn't think I could see anything more. It's just like, really, how much more is going to change in one year? That was my year last year. I, I just felt that I had come to a place where things around me were so different, and I, I just couldn't relate and uh, to, to truly understand what was happening around me. Maybe you felt the same way. You're watching the news, and you're like, what is going on? You, you, you talk with people, and, and you try to understand their rationale and their logic, and you're just like, I, I'm not on the same planet that you are. You see things happening to individuals that you never thought would ever happen. If someone were to say to you that, oh, their ministry is going to end in failure as it has, I would have said, no, I, I don't believe that, you know. But last year was one of those years for me. And I wanted to address it this morning because today marks the beginning of our 22nd year in ministry here at Calvary Chapel. It was 22 years ago that a group of people got together who were just dumb enough to believe the Lord could do great and mighty things through the teaching of his word. And 22 years later, I will tell you that as our church has certainly changed over those 22 years, the world around us has changed even further. And it's beginning to become very difficult to negotiate. I see it as a parent trying to coach my, you know, my child, my daughter, and trying to help her navigate the world in which she is going to spend her future in. And it's hard because I have to tell her with honesty, I haven't had to contend with things that you are contending with today. And I, don't, I can't relate to them. I can't relate to the, uh, the gender difficulties 
that we are experiencing in our nation today. And I think many of you could probably say the same thing. But you want to coach your children. You want to parent your children. You want to be able to give wisdom and advice to them. And I've noticed myself over this year not being able to give the depth of advice and wisdom that I wanted to give because I just didn't have a personal experience in it. That being said, I felt that today would be a good day to have a spiritual tune-up, not only as a church, but personally. I believe that the principles that we find in Acts chapter 2 should be applied to our church collectively, but also personally and individually. Let us say that you're going to your doctor and you say, doctor, I want to live a more healthy lifestyle. And they prescribe to you certain elements that you are maybe weak in and you need to improve in to have that healthy lifestyle that you so desire. I believe that we all need to pursue a healthy Christian lifestyle. But many don't know how to do that any longer. Many have kind of... Uh, fallen off the wagon, if you will. And they, they just have lost that perspective on how to maintain a healthy Christian lifestyle. And it's not complicated. It just takes commitment and self-discipline. It requires us to rely on God and His Word and trusting it and believing in it. It requires us to walk not in the flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God gives us the capabilities of doing all of those in and through all that he has blessed us with that are in heavenly places. It is just up to us now to appropriate what God has already blessed us with. As a church, many are asking the question, why is it even necessary for me to continue to weekly uh, attend a local church? If it is just singing and talking and praying and listening to a message, can't I just do that all online today? Well, you can to a certain degree, but you miss out on the essential aspect of what God desires to happen when his people come together to worship him. And many have stated that You know, now that with the, of course, the complete libraries of some of the most dynamic biblical teaching that we could ever have is available to us, in some cases, free online, what's the point of going to church on Sunday any longer? The problem is, is that they misunderstand the whole uh, concept of coming and fellowshipping together with fellow believers in Jesus Christ. They misunderstand it completely. And so I hope to redefine that for you this morning and why we gather together and not just do everything electronically. You know, I would not be surprised if 2019 is the year that someone invents a phone or a computer system that all of a sudden has a little tray that pops out with your communion elements. And you can just take it right there at home or in the subway or on a taxi or an Uber or whatever, and you can just have your full Christian experience right there through your phone or through your uh, computer. Of course, I'm kidding, but that's where many have gone today. 
And they're missing out on so much. There's a fundamental essence of us gathering together as a body, as a family, that cannot be duplicated by us simply sitting behind a screen. The screen is not the answer to all of our personal problems. In fact, I predict that in 2019, you are going to see many coming out and showing and demonstrating how detrimental screen time has actually been on our society. And I bet you that parents will be limiting the actual screen time in which they allow their children to uh, occupy themselves with mobile devices due to the damage that it is causing. They have now definitively proven that it causes brain damage that is irreversible. And it's it's coming out. Uh, And Steve Jobs said from the very beginning that he created the iPad that he would not let his children use it. What did he know that we didn't? That being said, folks, let us now look forward to 2019. 2018 was a challenging year. It was a challenging year for me. It was a challenging year for the American church, commercialized church, the celebrity-driven church. Two of the largest churches in our area have gone through scandal all year in 2018. One, a sexual scandal from over 20 years ago came to light. And six months before his retirement, this man's ministry was devastated by these uh, uh, revelations and this information. And that church, which was the largest church here in Illinois at at that time, has now been reduced to half of its attendance due to these scandals. On the other side, we have another pastor who's gone through financial issues, who's under scrutiny in many, many different regards by many, many different people, who now has to justify what he has done to bring his church into a place where they are $60 million in debt. And when we start talking to people about coming to church and being a Christian, they are equally aware of these situations because they are everywhere in the news. When a Christian does something spectacular, it's never reported. When a Christian falls dramatically or tragically, it is reported everywhere. And as a result, it's becoming even more difficult to encourage people, to invite people to come to church. There is a real resistance to individuals coming with you to church and to uh, experience church for themselves because of all the preconceived notions that they have. And many of them are are based on uh, truly realistic events. And so that being said, I wanted to go back and say, these things were devastating to me. And I I wanted to go back and I wanted to remind all of us why we come to church, not only personally, but collectively. Why does Calvary Chapel Cardinal exist as a church? What is the purpose in which we have as a church to exist and to function and flourish amongst the body of Christ here in the United States of America? What was God's design that we have implemented that we still hold to today that has led us through 22 years of service and ministry? 
Oh, we've never become the biggest church or the church with the most bells and whistles or the the wealthiest church on the block, but that was never our intention from the beginning. Our intention is that we would simply be a healthy church. And health must be monitored, doesn't it? Because health at 30 years old isn't the same as health as 50 years old. Things change. Your body reacts differently at 30 than it does at 50 to certain things. I am amazed when I watch young individuals, you know, eat, you know, 43 tacos at a Chipotle and they weigh maybe a buck ten. And it's just like, I look at that and gain weight. So churches need to remind themselves in the duration of their existence at different points, because we are at a much different point today than we were 22 years ago, and we need to be reminded of certain things. We need to understand what God would still have for us and what our purpose for existence is. Now, it is interesting that when people are polled concerning the reasons that they go to church, it is still amazing to me that one of the top three answers, and depending on what poll is given, it's always in the top three, that people come to church in hopes that they will leave feeling better than they did when they first arrived. I understand that mindset, but how do you make a person feel better when you don't know that person at all? What may make Jeff feel better doesn't make me feel better at all, or vice versa. So how can a church gear itself or create itself around meeting that felt need in people? We're going to help them feel better. And some churches would say, well, let's do it through powerful worship services. But other people who went to, came to church to hope that they feel better, the music is just way too loud for them. I wanted something more simple, uh, an individual on an organ, maybe accompanied with a kazoo. You cannot meet everyone's personal felt needs. That is why God did not say, okay, I want the congregants to tell you what the church is going to look like. I am going to tell you what the church is going to look like. And then you put that forward. God is the architect and the designer of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The study is called ecclesiology. It is the study of the church. God in his word has set down what is the purpose of the church and how the church should function. It is when we get away from that architecture, that design, that we always get ourselves in trouble. Always. Anytime we get ourselves away from the way God wants to do it, we get ourselves in trouble. And I will tell you that the design that God has created for the church is very simple. It doesn't function as an organization in the Word. It functions as an organism in the Word. It's something living. And when we come to Acts chapter 2, where I believe the church has begun... It is through the apostles that Jesus Christ now launches his church. And there are four distinct elements of this church 
that I believe we need to continue in today if we are going to, number one, be a healthy church, and number two, we are going to be healthy as individuals. I believe that the principles that apply to the church also apply to the individual. So if I'm feeling dry and I'm feeling distant from the Lord, maybe it's because I'm neglecting one of these principles that God has laid down for me. If a church is struggling, maybe it's because it has decided to go its own way and it's decided, therefore, that they need to do something better and therefore they have abandoned God's plan. They have adopted, excuse me, their own. And as a result, now they are reaping what they have initially sown. But let us talk about what I believe God's intention for the church is. The intention of the church begins with a mandate. It begins with marching orders. And then it tells us how those orders are to be fulfilled. So what is the order in which we are given that, are, that would equate to our marching orders? Well, it's found in Matthew 28, if you turn there with me. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. This is the marching orders for the church. I'll let you get there. I'll begin reading in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our marching orders are found within these verses. The goal of the marching order is to make disciples in all nations, all the world, taking the gospel into the world and not only having some come to Christ as their Savior and Lord, but then discipling them to the point of maturity. Because when they first come to Christ, they're simply an infant. Then you begin to teach them, instruct them in the word of God, and they begin to grow and mature. This is our mandate. This is our marching order. Now, if we just had this, then I would say that God is most likely giving us liberty and how we may fulfill that. But he's given us specifics. From the manner in which the church is to be led by elders, served by deacons, the core element of the church is the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. That individuals have been, have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit to be used for the edification of the church. All of this has been given to us in the word of God. But if I were to direct your attention to any one portion of Scripture that gave us an outline of all of this, it would have to be Acts chapter 2. And I know that many of you are very familiar with this, and this will be something you've heard in the past. But let me make it clear. Often when we discuss these things, we simply 
place that upon the responsibilities of the church, but don't look at it as one of my personal responsibilities in my own walk with the Lord. I want you not only to look at this as our responsibility as Calvary Chapel Cardinal, but I also want you to look at, hey, this is my own personal responsibility. And if we come to Acts chapter 2, Jesus has now ascended. He's been given, uh, the disciples have been given the instructions now to wait in the upper room for the arrival of the Holy Spirit, because when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will be given power to be witnesses for Jesus into all the areas of the world. Number one, principle for a church. It must be guided and led by the Holy Spirit. Now, I discovered years ago that one of the most uh, confusing aspects of the Christian faith is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. And depending on who you listen to, uh, teach the Word of God, they are going to slant it in their own personal direction of comfort. If you, te- if you listen to someone who doesn't believe that the Spirit is active in the uh, manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, which is called cessationism, they are going to lean away from the impact of the Spirit of God. And many times in their writings and in their books, you will find a really deficient idea of the Spirit of God. If you read those who go on the opposite end, the hyper-charismatic, the hyper-Pentecostal, you will realize that the Holy Spirit is without rain, and there's no relationship between Him and the Word of God, let alone His subjection to Jesus Christ, which is clearly indicated in John's Gospel, that the Spirit does not speak on His own authority, but the authority that has been given to Him, and on behalf of the Father and the Son. And so then you have a grossly wild concept of the Spirit's role within the life of the believer and in the life of the church. And it's often led to crazy things such as intoxication in the Spirit, laughing in the Spirit, and so forth. And they miss this fundamental simple balance that the Scriptures lay for the Spirit and clearly teach for the role of the Spirit. The Spirit of God introduces the supernatural element to the life of the believer and also to the life of the church. To do things apart from Him would be ridiculous. It is to say that we can do church apart from the supernatural interaction with God. For example, one coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ is an absolute miracle work of God and would not be capable if it wasn't for God's work in them. Do we realize that? Let alone the healing that the Spirit may provide or the, uh, the, uh, the provision or whatever the Spirit, the Spirit is led to do on behalf of His uh, people in the church. People are grossly misunderstanding the role of the Holy Spirit. So, of course, when we come to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I'm just, 13, I'm just going to outline this for you this morning due to our time constraint. They're waiting, they're praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. You know this text. They are filled with the Spirit. 
as a thunderous rushing wind blows through and ignites a flame on each and every one of them. They then come out speaking on the porch of the home, which is none other than the roof of the home, in other tongues, and of course that is languages of those who filled the streets of Jerusalem. And of course, as those who hear this, these tongues being spoken, they think that these men are intoxicated. I don't know about you, but I've never met an intoxicated person who can all of a sudden speak a second language, have you? Maybe a language that they've made up. Hey, you're the best I've ever had. Okay. So to think that they're intoxicated would be just silly. You no, know, they were filled with the Spirit, and Peter takes opportunity for the next principle of the church. But first and foremost, as God stated in the psalm, Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It is God who is responsible for building the church. It is God who is responsible, and we must let him labor as so. Zechariah encouraged Zerubbabel in the construction of the tower. He said, I'm the tower, the temple. It's not going to be by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The work that happens within the church must be led by the Holy Spirit working in the confined area of the word and also subjected to the authority of God the Father and Jesus Christ. I love what William MacDonald wrote. I love this. I read this as often as I can to remind myself. There are two ways to build a house. One is to move ahead with plans based on one's own knowledge, skill, and financial resources. Then ask God's blessing on the complete structure. The other is to wait until the Lord has given unmistakable guidance. Then to move ahead in conscious dependence on Him. In the first case, the project never rises above flesh and blood. In the second, there is a thrill of seeing God's working through the marvelous provisions of needed supplies, through the miraculous timing and sequential events, and through the converging in circumstances that would never happen according to the laws of chance. It makes all the difference in the world to be a building with God as its maker. That was my fundamental design from the beginning. It must be a work of the Holy Spirit. When Pastor Phil asked me about becoming a pastor out here in this area, I initially said there's so many churches. At that time, there's even more now. I said, what do we need another one for? I wanted to know that it was God who was leading this process. And I believe that my wife and I got that confirmation yesterday. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Number one, it must be a work of the Holy Spirit. Number two, when those gathered at the, uh, in the streets around the home in which the disciples were uh, up and praising God, Peter took this opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And from verses 14 all the way to 41 is his message, his presentation that centers around the Lord Jesus Christ, their sin their need for salvation, the cross, and the resurrection. That is the true nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 41, after the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and again, you can read these on your own for details. In verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, 
and were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. Holy cow. It started out with 120 in the upper room. They're praying. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They come out praising God in other tongues that they had been given by the Spirit. And as a result, a group gathers thinking they're drunk. What is going on here? Peter takes this opportunity, says, no, this is the fulfillment of Joel. This is the fulfillment of everything that we've been promised through Messiah. Jesus Christ was that Messiah. You crucified him. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. And now you need a Savior. And he is your Savior because on the third day he rose again after being crucified. They're pierced to the heart. They're convicted. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God, changing them from the inside out. And 3,000 come to saving faith that day and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second element of any healthy Christian life and church is that of evangelism. We are not meant to keep everything to ourselves that we learn about Jesus Christ. We are meant to share it with others who do not know. We are meant to take opportunities that God provides for us through the course of our day, through the course of our week, through the course of the month, through the course of the year. We are to look for these opportunities, pray for these opportunities, to share your story, possibly, of what God has done in your life to let them see how good and awesome of a God he is and give them the opportunity for receiving the salvation that Christ has come to offer to those who are his. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm seeing more Christians running from these opportunities than welcoming these opportunities today. I don't know why. I don't know if they don't feel that they're equipped to say or to respond to the questions that they may be posed. I don't know if it is the fact that they just simply don't want to deal with it. I don't know if it's just the fact that they may realize that they haven't been living like a Christian themselves, so to talk about it would be hypocritical at this moment. And I pray it's not the last one even how how bad those first three are, I pray that we just simply don't care anymore and that we are not saying to the world, to hell with you. And I mean that in a biblical, theological context, right? Because we are the last line of defense. We are the ones that have the light to pierce the darkness. We are the ones that God has commissioned Somebody took a risk with us and now we are unwilling to take a risk with someone else to see if they may come to saving faith. I risked everything with my parents over the last 30 some years. We had heated discussions, controversies, debates, arguments over the 30 some years. And I'm so glad that we didn't cease So glad I just didn't say, well, God, you know, forget it. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine any longer. 
I'm not going to just dismiss that they're too far gone, Lord. My mom's been drinking and her alcoholism is insurmountable and you'll never get past it, Lord. I'm so glad that that was never the attitude. I was discouraged at times. There were times that I uh, didn't feel like sharing when God was prompting me to do so, but I stayed obedient and God did the rest. He did the rest in his timing. I don't know why, but I'll tell you that doing it in the way that he did it, I now see that I'm more patient of a man today than I was before. And God says, I'm not only going to work in them, but I'm going to work in you. We have to be an evangelistic church. Pastor, what is our church growth program or plan? (laughs) You, you, you. I'm going to equip you. You're going to go back into your world and tell people about Jesus and let the Spirit of God do what the Spirit of God does. And you're not not responsible for the results. I'm not holding that on you. That's up to God. But be faithful. Everybody else is willing to share their opinions, right? But all of a sudden, when it gets to a conversation about God, we get all scared. We've got the God of all the universe behind us and we're scared. I think of David before Goliath. What's wrong with you guys? This guy is nothing in the sight of God. We can take him. What are you afraid of? Engage in these conversations. Because I do believe that it is a necessary component of not only a healthy church, but of a healthy individual. Your greatest assets in your evangelism endeavors is this, prayer and the Word of God. Prayer and the Word of God. Know that the Holy Spirit is working in the same direction you are and that the Word of God does its work perfectly in its time. Evangelism number two. But what do you do now with 3,000 new believers in Jesus Christ? Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, number one, and to fellowship. And in that fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. In the Greek language, it is structured in that outline form, that in their fellowship, it consisted of the breaking of bread and of prayers. They were taught the word of God. My job as your pastor is to equip you to fulfill the work of the ministry that God has called you to. If you are coming and you have no desire to be in ministry, this church may not be a good fit for you. See, we believe that everybody plays a role in the the redemptive drama that God has put forward known as the church. And my job is to equip you to fulfill whatever role the Lord has called you to. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 tells us very quick, clearly that pastors were given for the purpose of equipping the saints so the saints not only are equipped to fulfill the work of the ministry but are brought on to maturity as Christians in the Lord. You know, we have too many cases of stunted growth in adolescence today, don't we? People who don't want to grow up and become responsible for themselves as adults. I love what my daughter says to me often. She goes, Dad, I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to uh, uh, 
not adultery. What does she call it? Adulting. I'm adulting, Dad. That means she wants to be responsible for herself. And I, I appreciate that so much, that she's conscientious of that, that she wants to grow. She wants to become independent. She wants to become who God wants her to become. I appreciate that. The teaching of the Word of God will bring about maturity in the life of the believer. An individual won't grow into maturity if they are not in the Word of God. It's not going to happen. Just not going to happen. That's my job. To bring you and to equip you for ministry, to bring you into maturity through the teaching of the Word of God, it is your job to apply and to practice that which you are being taught. One wrote, he said, he said, A.W. Tozer, the content for the church is clearly to be revealed truth. I'm sorry, the content for the church is clearly to be revealed truth. I'm sorry. God's designed the church to be a place where his word is proclaimed and explained on a weekly basis. That's what we do here. That's my objective. You are our church growth process, inviting other people, evangelizing, sharing your faith with other people. Now, I have to interject here at this moment. During the 2000s, a a large church in the area started growing, and they were, you know, spreading out and forming different campuses and so forth, and they were absolutely bragging about their personal church growth. Those of us who were here and watched it, we had concerns because the manner in which their church was growing did not seem to coincide with the manner in which the manner that God wanted his church to grow. Let me explain. Their idea of church growth was to take people from other healthy churches and bring them into their church. They were soliciting, they were marketing themselves after these people. In one of the messages that were actually uh, taught by the pastor of that church, he said, we want to take up as much market share as possible. Really? That's not church growth, that's church displacement. That's people transferring from one church to another church. And what attracted to them there was not to the idea that God was leading them there, but was because this was the new thing, the novelty. This is where everybody seemed to be going. This is where, well, and now we see where it's at today. It's one of the churches that was riddled with scandal and controversy all last year. That's not church growth. Church growth in the Bible presentation of it is an individual coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Out of death into life, out of darkness into light, that's church growth. Not only are we supposed to continue in the apostles' teaching, that is the word of God personally and also collectively, but we are also to be in fellowship with one another, something that cannot be done apart from being with the actual people of your church. And in that, we are to break bread. There are those who hold to that meaning, communion, taking of communion, which is something that they did apart from their church service. They would break out into small community groups there within the church, and they would remember the Lord by taking communion together. 
very, very probable. But it also can simply mean that they ate together. They fellowshiped with one another. They, uh, they got to know each other on a personal, intimate level. That everyone mattered who was there. That no one was excluded from the conver- uh, conversation. No one felt distant from the groups of people or felt isolated or unwelcomed. And then they also prayed together. The early church saw prayer as one of the greatest blessings that they could possess. The privilege, let me say it that way, the greatest privilege that they could possess. Again, I argue that it's probably one of the most neglected privileges that we have today. I appreciate when people say to me that they pray individually alone at home. I'm so thankful for that. You should be doing that. But I'm also grateful for someone who takes out time of their personal day and joins their brothers and sisters for prayer for an hour and lifts up the needs of the church and their fellow brothers and sisters. Them taking that trip, getting in the car and coming here, they're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm making this a priority. I'm, I'm putting this first. I, I'm, I, I'm taking away from TV time. I'm taking away from my own personal work around the house time. I'm taking away from these things, and I'm going to pray for an hour with my church family. Folks, this is where we need help in as a church. We're all busy. We all have responsibilities. All of our time is limited. Okay? And it's interesting that people will look around their personal lives and say, boy, I wish my family was more on fire for the Lord. Are you praying for them? I I, I wish my marriage was where God would want it to be. Are you praying for it? Are you having others pray for it? I will tell you, when we first started this church, There was a transparency and a brokenness to people that cannot be duplicated. And individuals would come to our church who were the one spouse who was saved and praying for their other, you know, their spouse to be saved. And what we did was many of them were women who were coming to the church. We matched them up with other women in the church and they solely prayed for that unsaved spouse. And we were like, Lord, is this working? Is this having any effect? And then one of our baptisms, all of a sudden when we were baptizing, there was this one woman who came with her children. She wanted to be baptized with them. And as they were entering into the pool, all of a sudden I saw her husband who was there start taking off his, his shirt. I'm like, what is he doing? And all of a sudden he walked in and gave his life right to Christ right then and there. It had nothing to do with necessarily what I said, maybe, but it had everything to do with those people praying earnestly. Prayer is invaluable, folks. We cannot neglect prayer. If we neglect prayer, we're going to be nostalgic as a church. We're going to be impotent as a church. That's just the reality of it. We're all busy, folks. We're all busy. You know, when I have free time, I just want to spend it on those things that are important. I understand that. I'm in the same boat you are. I have family. I have other responsibilities. But please, understand that when it's all said and done, when we stand before the Lord, when we get there, one hour a month, we can't come out and pray, really, together as a church. Just come out and pray together. 
We don't even require that you pray out loud if you come, if you don't feel comfortable praying out loud. We just say, come and pray together as a church. In their fellowship, they broke bread and there was in prayers. Now notice what happens in the wake of this. And awe came upon every soul. That means a reverence, a fear for God, a a truly a desire to see him glorified in a place in a place of preeminence within the the life, their own personal life and the life of the church came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Folks, let me make it abundantly clear if I haven't said this, I truly believe God can do miracles today. But often we don't believe that. And therefore we don't ask. Well, okay, if we don't ask, you know, maybe we should start asking and see what God would do. It's up to him, right? It's up to him if he doesn't. But I'm going to ask because you know why? I know he's perfectly capable of doing it. He's perfectly capable of doing it. Notice this, and he goes on, that there was a personal change in their heart. Notice this, all who believed were together. They enjoyed hanging out with one another. They enjoyed the fellowship of one another. They made a point to being with one another and had all things in common, which is a phrase that we need to dig into a little bit deeper to truly understand. That is that they sold what excess they had so those who were in need could have something also. It doesn't mean that they gave up everything and went into this communal living. It means that they gave up the excess in which they had. That's what it means here. Their possessions didn't mean as much to them. Notice in verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all uh, proceeds to all as any who had need. Now, this was huge for Jewish people. Boy, that sounded really bad. Um, Jewish people believed that if you were right and loved and favored by God, you would have multiple abundance of possessions. Rich young ruler, rich young ruler, the disciples after he walked away said, if he can't be saved, no one can be saved. Well, the reason being is that they thought he was in complete favor with God because of all that he had. Jesus said, that's not the case. Here, they understand that their favor is given to them through Christ and their possessions don't mean that to them. They don't derive their identity from those material things that they have any longer. So anyone who has need, hey, I'll sell this, I'll sell that. So I can provide for my brother who has a need and or has nothing. And verse 46, and day by day attending the temple, that's where they met. Together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Having favor with all the people is all the people who were unsaved. It's not referring in the grammar, in the text, to those who are saved, having favor with all the people, meaning they had favor with those outside the church. And as a result, and the Lord added to their numbers, here's church growth, day by day, those who were what? Being saved. 
The world saw the simplicity and the gladness that the church was living in. They saw the spirit of generosity, the spirit of unity amongst them. They showed and discovered the spirit of thankfulness with that simplicity, that humble sincerity. They saw a a spirit of praise amongst the new church that they couldn't identify with. And as a result, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They conducted themselves because of this awe. It was an awe that is used to speak of being in the presence of God. When the Shekinah glory came down upon the temple in the Old Testament, there was an awe that struck the people. The same awe is had by them. And they were people of prayer. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. I love that phrase by Tozer. This is the tune-up that I believe that all of us needed to hear this morning. As we begin our 22nd year of ministry, there are a few things I'd like to let you know and bring to your attention. Number one, when it comes to the needs of our church, the Lord has continued for 22 years to be faithful to the provision of our church. As you know, we do not make it a point to collect and gather money each and every Sunday. And God has met all of our needs and then some in 2018. In 22 years, I am happy to say that as a church, we are still debt-free as a church. And God continues to provide not only the needs that our church has, but the servants that our church has to meet the needs of the congregation and so forth. And also I wanted to share with you that this year we are seeking the Lord, just saying, Lord, what would you have for us to do next? We don't feel like we've come to a point of retirement, a point of getting off the train Lord, what great thing would you have for our church next? And so that is what we bring to your attention this morning. Lord, what great thing do you have for our church in 2019? And that's what we will seek you for.